Uh, good morning, everybody. Great to be with you guys this morning. It's been a great morning thus far. Thank you for everybody offering their different gifts and services. I love uh, when the scripture says, uh, worship me with the tambourine and the harp and the trumpet and the brass and the bass and everything in between. It's a great sound. Uh, so it's been a cool morning. So proud of Rebecca and just all the work you put into this worship. Thank you for leading us in that way. A uh, special morning for me. My mom's here joining us for the very first time. So I need you to be on your very best behavior and I need you to laugh at every single corny joke that I say, starting now. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. Okay, good start. Not so good. Okay. Um, before we get started this morning, uh, I want to talk to a certain group of people real fast, uh, my school age folks. And I've got some good news and some bad news for those who are in school right now. Let's start with the bad news first. Always good to get that out of the way, right? The bad news is school is starting soon. So that means that the days of sleeping until 3 p.m. or watching all 20 seasons of Walking Dead in one sitting or lounging at the pool all afternoon, those days have come and they have gone. Unless, of course, you're a student at CU Boulder and that's what you do all day anyways. <laughs> so that's the bad news. But here's the good news. School is starting soon. Okay, no one believes that to be good. I thought parents or somebody would give me a cheer for that one. Now, I say all that because I honestly do think that it's good news. Uh, the school year, the beginning of a new school year, presents us with a really unique opportunity. And I just want us as a church to be aware of what our students are about to go into, what they're about to start. I want us to pray for them this morning. Um, God can do and wants to do incredible things, especially in the younger generation. God has always had a heart for the youth, always had a heart for the younger generation. And so our students, whether it's kindergarten all the way up through master's level, he wants to use you in your classroom and at your school to do incredible gospel kingdom-sized type of things. You see, your classmates are going through really hard things. Your classmates are going through divorce maybe through broken home, financial struggles, loneliness, fears, regrets, and you have the spirit of the living God in you, student. You have the resurrected power of Christ in you. You can transform their life. You can transform your whole school. I came to faith as a junior in high school simply because a cute girl invited me to church. Ryan came to faith because someone in high school, a best friend in high school, invited him to come. Not so cute, but same effect, same result. <laughs> Sorry, Brett, nothing personal. Yeah, okay, yeah, I guess the wife argues with that. Yeah, that's right, that's right. But I'm not sure if you know this, but Christ can and will use you in your classroom. And so with, with those who are maybe entering into college, going back to college, would you stand up for us real fast so we can recognize? Hey, who's my college students in here? All right, we want to pray for you. Keep standing, keep standing up for me. How about, uh, how about our high schoolers? Who's going to high school? College, stay, stay standing, college age. Who's going into high school here in a couple of days, couple of weeks? few more. Okay. And uh, how, about, how about everybody else? Where's mid-school, elementary, everybody else? Anybody else that goes to school? Stand up for us real fast. I know it's hard to be a Christian at school. I know that sometimes it's, it looks odd and you have to stand out and it just feels a little awkward, but I want to challenge you guys. Be like Christ this year in your classroom, he will do incredible things. Let's pray for this special group of people, can we? And, and you guys over here, you're special too. God, we love our students and we give them to you now at the beginning of a new school year. Maybe it's tomorrow or next Monday or several weeks from now. But you are the God of new beginnings and new things and so we give this new school year to you. Would you use each of these students in profound and powerful ways to do incredible things? 
Would they be light and life and love and salt and grace in the classroom? To their peers, to the classmates, to the administration, to the teachers, would they show them Jesus? Would you protect them, God? We know that Satan is attacking and always will our schools. We know that very well in this community. Would you protect this school year? Would your Holy Spirit cover and shield our students from evil? And would many people come to know you as Lord as a result of these students in this school year? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, students. We are so proud of you and excited to see uh, what God does this year for you, through you. Uh, today's our last week in a series entitled God Is. Thanks to John for making these great videos. Thanks for all of you uh, for putting up with John's antics and answering his question out in the foyer. But we basically spent time the last four weeks finishing this phrase because this is the most important phrase out there. And here's why that is. The more we discover and figure out who God is, the more we will figure out and discover who we are. We have been made in his image to bear his likeness. And thus, whatever and whoever he is, is who we have been created to become and to be like. And so we've learned over the last few weeks that God, among other things, is a ludicrous lover. He's the sovereign speaking one. And last week, we had an amazing week together where we learned he was the dedicated deliverer. I've got a thing for alliteration if you haven't figured that out yet. But go back, listen to those sermons and those messages if you haven't. There's some powerful truth in each of them. And the more you discover God as each of those things, I think the more they will have an effect on you. So today we're going to tackle our fourth and final uh, truth, our fourth and final trait. And I'm a little upset that the series is coming to an end. That's my decision, so I have no one to blame but myself. But I've loved the series. And I hope that you have as well. And there are so many more traits that I want to cover. There's magnificent mystery, caring comforter, sacrificial servant, protector of the poor. But we'll revisit this probably every summer here at West Bowles. And we'll learn more about each and every summer who God is. So today, let's close out strong. Let's bring in the lefty from Albuquerque. And let's do one more God is. Uh, I find it amazing how frequently... And where the story of God's love shows up. I find it interesting how frequently and in what odd situations the gospel shows up. Think about how Jesus did this, right? He said, oh, you see that bush over there? The, the kingdom's kind of like that. Oh, and that sheep over there? Yeah, the kingdom's kind of like that. And that building right there, the kingdom's kind of like that. I think he's saying the gospel is everywhere. You just got to open your eyes. And so I've seen it recently. Maybe it's the newness of a new day or the hope and excitement of a new school year, or a new job, or maybe a new calendar year. Maybe you see it in the beauty of creation, or, or where we get to see new life, right? New babies, or, or new plants, or new seedlings. I'm not a gardener, but new springtime stuff. And maybe I'm just a corny preacher that sees it in places I shouldn't, but I've even seen it in, in HGTV shows like Rescue My Renovation, or Undercover Boss. The gospel is everywhere. And what's funny is I stumbled across it a few nights ago as I was reading to Bailey this book, The Day Jimmy's Boa Ate the Wash. Let me do my best reading rainbow impersonation here and read the book to you. I'm sorry if you're in the, in the upper balcony. You might not see the pictures. But let me read to you The Day Jimmy's Boa Ate the Wash. How was your class trip to the farm, honey? Uh, boring, kind of dull. Till the cow started crying. A cow crying? Yeah, you see, a haystack fell on her. Well, a haystack doesn't just fall over, dear. Well, it does if a farmer crashes into it with his tractor. Oh, come on. A farmer wouldn't do that. 
He would if he were too busy yelling at the pigs to get off the school bus. What were the pigs doing on the bus? Eating our lunches. Why were they eating your lunches? Well, because we were throwing their corn at each other. So they didn't have anything else to eat. Well, that makes sense. But why were you throwing corn? Well, because we ran out of eggs. Out of eggs? Why were you throwing eggs? Because the boa constrictor. The boa constrictor? Yeah, Jimmy's pet boa constrictor. What was Jimmy's pet boa constrictor doing on the farm? Oh, he brought it to meet all the farm animals. But the chickens didn't like it. You mean he took it to the hen house? Yeah, and the chickens started squawking and flying all around. Go on, go on, what happened? Well, one hen got excited and laid an egg, and it landed on Jenny's head. The hen? No, the egg. Yuck, broke all over her. What'd she do? Well, she got mad because she thought Tommy threw it, so she threw one at him. Well, what'd Tommy do? He ducked, and the egg hit Marianne in the face. So she, she threw one at Jenny, but missed and hit Jimmy, who dropped the boa constrictor. Oh, and I know. The next thing you know, everyone's throwing eggs, right? Right. And when you ran out of eggs, you threw the pig's corn, right? Right again. Well, what finally stopped it? Well, we heard the farmer's wife screaming. Why was she screaming? We never exactly found out because Miss Stanley made us get on the bus, and we sort of left in a hurry without the boa constrictor. I bet Jimmy was sad because he left his pet boa constrictor behind. Not really. We left in such a hurry that one of the pigs didn't get off the bus. So now he's got a pet pig. <laughs> now, I love this book because in all honesty, I think it reads just like Genesis chapter 3. <laughs> Call me crazy, but this is the story of the gospel right here. Think about Genesis chapter 3. We read about this garden paradise that God had made for Adam and Eve. And then, literally, all hell breaks loose in this garden, all because of one little serpent, all because of one little boa constrictor, if you will. He sets this devastating set of circumstances and consequences into motion. It's this domino effect. And I wish, I wish that what happened in Genesis 3 were as lighthearted and fun as some cracked eggs and a new pet pig. What happened in Genesis 3, the consequences of Genesis 3 are much greater than when Jimmy's boa ate the wash. See, in Genesis chapter 3, because of the serpent, three relationships completely fell apart that are still in shambles today. The first is between man and creation. As a result of that serpent, a conflict now exists between man and creation, between man and the world. Instead of the ground being favorable, and responsive to us. Instead of the ground being fruitful and abundant and easy to care for, the world is now going to fight against us and vice versa. So everything from famine to drought to pollution to, to global warming to food shortages to disease to death, it's all a consequence of the serpent and the conflict that now exists between us and creation. That's just the first consequence of the snake. The second is another relationship, and this relationship is between us and our wives, or us and our neighbors, more generically speaking. Think about how Adam responds when God asks, what happened here? She made me do it. It was my wife's fault. He blames his wife. He tries to justify and position himself by hurting and condemning and accusing another person. So Adam now has a conflict with creation, but now he also has a conflict with other people. 
Because you see, that finger pointing and those accusations, they've never stopped since. Wars, racism, sexism, abuse, slavery, neglect, rumors, gossip. There's an enmity between humanity because of what happened in that garden, because of that serpent. And the final relationship that was torn apart is the one between man and his God. That was totally destroyed. When the serpent got what he wanted, mankind began going down this path where they run and hide from God as opposed to run to God. The serpent got his way, and so now we go and do our own thing and walk away from God as opposed to walk with God. God went from our father and our friend to someone we're afraid of or flee from. So now there's this conflict between us and God, us and each other, and us and the ground. That darn snake, that darn boa constrictor, I mean, if Jimmy's boa hadn't shown up and eaten the wash, we'd have a wonderful day at the farm. We'd still be living in paradise, right? Well, maybe not. You see, it's easy to blame the snake for the chaos. It's easy to blame the serpent or to say, well, the devil made me do it. But the truth is, I did it. The truth is, it's my fault. The truth is, Adam and Eve are responsible, and now I'm more like them than I want to admit to. Because you see, in, in the garden, Adam and Eve basically said this, God, forget you. Forget you. Forget what you said. Forget what you want for me. Forget your warnings. Forget your rules. I'm going after that fruit, that job, that hobby, that thing, that girl, that drug, no matter what you say. Forget you. And if I'm honest, I'm so much more like Adam and Eve than I'd ever want to admit to. You see, like them, I've turned my back on God and focused all my time and attention instead of the one that created me on myself. I've abused and accused others instead of serve and love them. And I've mistreated and neglected creation instead of tending and caring for it. I'm just like them. It's my fault. I'm the one that caused these conflicts. I can't blame the boa constrictor. Jimmy just brought him along, but I'm the one responsible. I don't know if you can relate to that or if you feel that same way, but the Bible describes all of that, this propensity that we have to kind of turn our nose up at God or stick our tongue out at him. It describes that in one word. The word is called hostility. It's a powerful word, isn't it? Hostility. Reminds me of a story I read this past week about two men. They lived in a small village. They got into a huge fight. They couldn't solve the problem on their own, so they went to the town judge. The first man went late one night and told his side of the story, said everything that happened from his vantage point. When he finished, the judge said to him, you are absolutely right. The next night, the second man came to the judge's house and he told his side of the story, everything from his vantage point, and the judge responded, you are absolutely right. Well, afterward, the judge's wife scolded her husband. Those two men told you different stories completely. You told them they were both absolutely right. That's impossible. They can't both be absolutely right. Their conflict is nothing to laugh at, nothing to take lightly. The judge turned to his wife and said, you are absolutely right. But she was right. I don't know about the other two guys, but the wife was right. Hostility and conflict is nothing to take lightly. It's nothing to laugh at, especially the conflicts that came out of the garden. The conflict between us and God is nothing to laugh at. The conflict between us and one another is nothing to laugh at. And the conflict between us and creation is nothing to laugh at. It's serious. 
You see, sin is the great separator. Sin, or what we might call selfishness, self-centeredness, self-interest, it divides, it tears apart, it breaks things apart. I've heard it called the separating impact of sin. Let me give you a couple of examples. Pornography separates a man from reality and from the beauty of his wife. Anger separates you from joy and from seeing things clearly. Fear separates you from the ability to share things or be grateful. An unforgiving spirit separates you from new possibilities and stronger relationships. You see how that happens? Sin separates. So when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, a great separation occurred. A separation between us and God, us and one another, and us and creation. And that is why I can't wait. I've been waiting all week to share this word with you. I wish right now that we could pray and, and this auditorium would open up, the, the heavens would part, and we would hear a voice from heaven say this, because this is God's message to you. Colossians 1. He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of separation. He's transferred us into the kingdom of his son. He purchased our freedom and forgave us our sins. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created. He is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things that we can see and the things we can't even see, such as thrones and kingdoms, rulers, authorities, even in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all things together. Are you getting the point here? Jesus is awesome. Oh, and by the way, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He's the beginning, supreme over all who will rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you. You who were once far away from God, you were his enemies, you were separated from him because of your sin, yet now he's reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ. And as a result, he has brought you into his presence, and now you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. What an incredible word. What an incredible text. Here's why. Blame whoever you want to. Okay, blame the serpent for what happened in the garden. Blame the woman for the poor choices that you made. Blame the boa constrictor for what happened on the farm. Blame your parents for your alcohol problem. Blame your ex for your bitter spirit and unforgiving heart. Blame the economy for your financial hardship. Blame bad luck for the situation you find yourself in now. Blame whoever you want for creating the problems. Here's the truth. There's only one who can solve the problem, and his name is Jesus. See, there's a lot of reasons and a lot of people over here that cause the problem. Blame any of them you want. There's only one on this side of the equation that can solve the problem, and his name is Jesus. He's good enough to solve the problem. He loves us enough to solve the problem, and he's powerful enough to solve the problem. He's the fullness of God, the manifestation of God. He's the image of the invisible God. He fixed the mess. He fixed the mess that Jimmy's boa made on the farm. He fixed the mess that Adam and Eve made in the garden. And now, praise God, he fixes the mess that I make every single day. He fixes things. He fixes things. Not the government, not an upturn in the economy, not your pastor, not your parents, and especially not you. 
You couldn't do anything about that separation. That hostility that existed here, here, and here, you were powerless to do anything about it. It says we were enemies of God. We were dead in our sin. When was the last time you saw a dead thing do anything? Oh yeah, never. <laughs> dead things don't do anything. We were powerless, but not Jesus. Jesus is not an enemy of God. He's his only son. Jesus isn't alienated from God. He's the beloved of God. Jesus isn't dead or powerless. He's alive and well. He can and he promises to fix everything that went crazy in the garden. Somehow through the cross, Jesus took all of the hostility, all the animosity, all the separation, all of the sin, and he dealt with it personally. And here's why I'm so drawn to Christianity. Because unlike all other religions, the burden of what happened in that garden, the burden of what happens in your life, the burden of the chaos of this world, the burden of having to fix yourself or be good enough, the burden of all of that, it doesn't rest on your shoulders. It rested on his shoulders. That's not your problem to solve anymore. You caused the problem. You couldn't solve the problem. He came down because I wouldn't go up. He came close because I was far away. He entered in because I was backing out. He obeyed and listened because I was turning a deaf ear. And this is the beauty of our God. Here's our final trait. He is the relentless reconciler. Our God is a God who repairs things that are broken. Our God is a God who restores things that have been destroyed. Our God is a God who reconciles things that were once separated. Let me tell you a story that happened a couple weeks ago. We move into our house, and wouldn't you know it, the dishwasher goes out. Yay! Thank you, Mr. Inspector. So, first thing that happens, it just smells horrendous. So I just find some crazy magic chemicals at Lowe's, pour them all in there, turn it on, and see what happens. It's like a bad science fair experiment, like, volcano, mom, help! Then I decided to take the thing apart. Surely I could take the little motor apart, clean inside of there, put it back together with no problem. No, major problem. Things sounded like a small rocket engine after I put it back in. It all came to a head the next day when I get a text from Becca, um, dot, 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 water pouring out of dishwasher, dot, dot, dot. It took everything in me not to grab that thing out of the cabinets and just throw it into the front yard. I'm trying to witness to my neighbor, so I thought that might be a poor decision. I mean, could you imagine? Like, There's the dishwasher in pieces in my front yard. But you see, God doesn't do that. God doesn't give up. God doesn't abandon things that are broken. He doesn't throw them out in frustration. He relentlessly seeks to repair them. No matter how stinky you are, how much noise you make, how much water you're leaking, he's not going to give up on you. Sorry, that, that looked a lot better on paper. <laughs> John, let's scratch that from the video. All right, let's not, let's not have that echo in eternity. But God relentlessly reconciles things. I love the word that Paul uses here in Colossians, reconcile. You know what that word reconcile means? It means to bring harmony back into a relationship, to bring peace where there was discord, friendship where there was hatred and animosity. 
And that's what Jesus did for us in God. The most important of those three relationships, he repaired. He took the serpent. He took the sin. He took the separation, and he destroyed it. He said, enough. He made those of us who were God's enemies his friends. Check your Facebook. You have a new request. Those of you who are on the outside looking in, you're now inside and part of the in crowd. Those of you who were far off, you were as close as you can get. See, here's the thing. A lot of people think that Jesus saved us from God. That God was angry with us, mad at us. That because of our rebellion and our sin and our brokenness, his hand was clenched, his arm was raised, and his wrath was about to be poured out. And just as he was about to smash you because of the mistakes that you've made in your life, Jesus stepped in and said, but God, save them, I love them. Jesus didn't save us from God. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus was sent by God to save us from sin. Sin is trying to crush you. The separation that exists between you and God, you and others, and you and the world, that's trying to destroy you. And Jesus stepped in and saved you from that, and it was God's idea. God loves you too much to let you be crushed by those things. And what's crazy to me about all this, this is just the beginning. The relationship, the reconciliation I now have with God, that's just the beginning. What Jesus did for us and God, he is going to do for all of creation. Look at verse 20 again here in Colossians. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. Just in case we miss it, he says it again. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth through Christ. You know what the Greek word for everything there is? Everything. Everything will be reconciled. At the cross, Jesus eliminated the gap between us and God. And now he says, and you know what? I'm gonna eliminate the gap between you and other people too. Oh, and by the way, I'd love to reconcile you back to creation, so I'm gonna remove that gap too. Everything will be reconciled, all things. His death so superior, his sacrifice so great, his life so pure, everything in, on heaven and on earth and under the earth will be reconciled, everything. And I hope that that truth will change things in your life. Let me show you how I think that it should. Second Corinthians tells us this. Anyone united, hear that language now, no more separation, you are now together with the Messiah, you get a fresh start. You've been created new. The old life, the farm life is gone. A new life begins, look at it. All of this comes from the God who settled the relationship between us and him. And then he called us to settle our relationships with each other. God put the world square with himself through the Messiah, giving the world a fresh start by offering forgiveness of sins. God has given us the task now of telling everyone what he's up to. We're Christ's representatives. God uses us to persuade men and women to drop their differences and enter into God's work of making things right. Here's your commission right here, Christian. You now have a great relationship with the Lord. Jesus has come in and repaired that, reconciled you with your Father. And now he says, and I want that to bleed over, to bubble over into all your other relationships. I took care of the relationship you could do nothing about. And now I'm asking you to partner with me to help fix the relationships you can do something about. See, last week we talked about God saving us from things, the deliverance. That's only half the equation. He saves you from things because he wants to save you for things. It's not just like, son, hey, you're not messing with that stuff anymore? Great, uh, just sit there now and don't do that again. 
No, no, son, I saved you from those things so I could empower you to do these things. I'm sorry, last week I only gave you half the equation. This week is the second part of the equation. He took care of the most important relationship, and now he's asking us to partner with him to bring about reconciliation in the other relationships. And he's going to do it. The question is, are you going to help him? I've got a great friend named Brett. He was at a Billy Graham crusade one time. If you've ever been to one of these crusades, you know how it is. You know, huge bleachers. Imagine Sports Authority Field just packed with people. And at the end of this gospel message, people are just impacted and so, so consumed by the word. He offers a response, right? An altar call. If you want to receive God, if you want that relationship to be reconciled right now in this moment forever, come on down front. Pray with somebody. So Brett, he sees a woman sitting in front of him. He's never met her before in his life. And he just senses in his heart, in his spirit, he needs to introduce himself to this woman and invite her to go down to the field to receive Christ that day. Brett's a strong Christian, and so he didn't necessarily need to respond to the altar call that day, but he felt on his heart he needed to help this woman to do it. Help her out. Take her down. Ah, oh, but God, we're in, we're in, you know, FFF section up here in the back. It'll take us 20 minutes to get down to the field. She's older. She might think I'm trying to hit on her. This could be weird. What if she's with somebody? Right? He just kept giving excuses as to why he couldn't do it. Suddenly, someone reaches over his shoulder. Another stranger taps the woman on her shoulder. Ma'am, would you want to go down front, receive Christ today? She turns around to the man behind Brett, says, I was just waiting for someone to ask me. And there's Brett. <laughs> Brett's a great guy. He never made a mistake ever again. But <laughs> the invitation is there. God's going to reconcile all things through Christ. It's going to happen. That's a done deal. It's not up to us. But you are invited into the party. You're invited into it if you want to be a part of it. The question is, will you want to be a part of it? So let me give you three takeaways and three ways I think you could be a part of it this week. Your three takeaways are going to revolve around the three relationships that went crazy on, in the garden. The first thing I want you to do is find a way to reconcile yourself to creation this week. I want you to find something to restore, to redeem, and to reconcile as it pertains to the created world. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Oh, here we go. It took four or five weeks, but here's the California guy talking about going green. <laughs> Maybe. But recycle something, plant a tree, tear up some cement and plant some grass, buy organic, drive a hybrid, better yet, walk. Do something to care for creation. Begin down here. Reconcile the relationship that was separated between you and creation. Partner with God to bring reconciliation of all things into being. The next is a little bit more difficult. We move from the tension and separation that exists between us and creation, and now we're going to talk about the tension that exists between us and other people. What I want you to do this week is find a relationship where there's some tension, some discord, some distance, some hostility. And I want you to take a very practical step to reconcile that relationship. I'm not asking you to be best friends with them or invite them over for dinner this week. If that's what it takes, then take that step. But just take a step closer to someone that you'd want to take a step away from. Send a note, offer an apology, find a way to serve them. Do something to bridge the gap. You see, Christ has reconciled and will reconcile all things. And I know it sounds crazy and you don't believe it, but that means all things. That means the broken relationship that you have with your mom. He can reconcile that. That means the estranged relationship you have with your sister or your daughter 
or that toxic relationship you have with your ex or the troubling relationship you have with your boss or with your neighbor. God can reconcile that. He wants to reconcile that. And 2 Corinthians tells us he's inviting you into being a part of reconciling that. I know it's hard, church. I'm gonna be praying for you all week as you take steps to reconcile a relationship with another. And then the third relationship is obviously the one between us and God. So first things first, if you've never confessed Jesus as your reconciler, as your redeemer, as your repairer, if you think he wants to throw you out into the lawn and make fun of you, you're wrong. He wants to save you, he wants to fix you, he wants to help you. So if you've never said, yes, Jesus, I'm yours, fix me, heal me, save me, reconcile me, let's do that this morning. Let's just get that out of the way. Come find me, come find another staff member, we'd be happy to pray for you. But if you have, which most of us in this room probably have, if you have made that decision before, you've gotta tell somebody else about God as a relentless reconciler this week. You've just gotta open your mouth and be courageous to tell him, to tell her, tell whoever it might be, something about this relentless reconciling God that we serve. Challenge yourself to share the message of hope, the promise of reconciliation. Invite them to help fix creation. Tell them why you're bridging the gap between you and them and invite them to forever and always have that relationship fixed. Tell them that the day Jimmy's bow ate the wash, it was a crazy, chaotic day. But that's only half the story. Instead, how about you tell them about the day Jesus died for the world? You tell them those two things. That's a great read right there. I think some amazing things will happen as a result. Let me pray that over you and we'll call it a morning. God, we love you so much, and we just stand in awe of the fact that you would want to fix us, that you would want to come in and make up for all of our mistakes. Lord, you gave us a perfect paradise in the Garden of Eden, and we messed it up. And all before we blame the serpent or before we blame Adam and Eve, Lord, we know we do the same thing because we do the same thing every day. We turn away from you, we look to ourselves, we hurt other people, we abuse creation. God, we're just as guilty And Lord, you could and probably should abandon us and let us suffer and deal with the consequences of our sin, but you don't. You are an amazing God who relentlessly reconciles us. You give us creation back. And we can't wait, as Isaiah says, to lie with the lions when creation is fully restored. We can't wait, God, for the reconciliation of all human relationships. We don't have to mess with people that get on our nerves, that frustrate us, that hurt us, and that abuse us when we're all living in harmony. And God, we can't wait until we see you and walk with you as we did in the garden at one point. So we thank you for being a reconciling God that you don't throw things out, but instead you fix them. And we ask that you would fix whatever is broken now in us and that you would empower us to go into the world this week and fix the broken things that we find, the broken people that we see and are introduced to. Would we be messengers of reconciliation? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.